couple announcements uh, real quick. Uh, in your bulletin, as you look at the notes, if you look them over, I forgot. I do make mistakes every once in a while. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, I forgot to add A, B, and C under point number one. So um, kind of had a long week. Appreciate your prayers as we were traveling to Marion, Illinois to do a wedding uh, on Saturday, and we got back around 9.30 last night, and I had to do some finishing touches on my message and that sort of thing. I think I wrapped that up around midnight, and so um, so hopefully my brain's functioning here. We'll see. We'll see how that works out this morning, but uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, I uh, was looking at some different uh, messages, actually, over this passage of Scripture, and and uh, read a couple of messages that um, Charles Spurgeon had preached um, Using you know one or two verses because that's the way he did it and and he he would talk for an hour on one verse but um uh, this title is actually a title that that he used uh, for a portion uh, in this uh, passage of scripture the Savior we need the Savior we need Hebrews five one through ten I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this morning we start a new chapter in the book of Hebrews, and the theme that we found beginning actually back in um, chapter 4, verse 14, and continued on here, will continue actually through chapter 10. And the theme is that, of course, of Jesus as our high priest. If you were here when we first started this book of, of Hebrews, you may remember that I pointed Um, to the fact that Hebrews is the only New Testament book where we are taught that Jesus is our high priest. Now, I want to, I just want to caution you this morning because I think a lot of times um, 
we can come to Scripture and and to book studies like what we're going through and like what I enjoy going through as a pastor, and we can have this kind of jaded view. We think to ourselves, isn't there uh, something else that's more practical for us to study? Couldn't pastor just do a topical study? I mean, people struggle with marriages and finances and how to raise their kids and and how to deal with the problems of life. Do we really need to continue this book study of Hebrews into the new year? I mean, what do I need to know about Jesus as a high priest anyway? And um, is it really a big deal? Is uh, isn't there something more relevant to preach on? You know, those kinds of things. And and you know, I, I get that. I get when people kind of think that way and why folks think that way. And I understand why sometimes we feel that way. But let me just say this. Jesus is the answer to all of your needs. And until we come to an understanding that an infinitely thrice holy God and an understanding of our sinfulness and our unworthiness to come before Him, we will never understand and appreciate the importance of the priest. We just won't. Our failure to understand who God is and who we are is what makes this whole idea of a priesthood foreign to many Christians today. And it it makes the atonement almost seem insignificant to us because we don't really understand it. We don't understand what the atonement is and why we had it. And it is one of the reasons why Christians often refuse to kill sin in their lives. One of the reasons why the Old Testament is so vital in understanding and applying to the New Testament is found right here in these chapters in Hebrews. It helps us understand that God is sovereign over all things. It helps us comprehend the power of God and the glory of God. And it confronts us with this reality that that we are exceedingly sinful. And because we are exceedingly sinful, then we are in need of a Savior. And when we understand the importance of the sacrifice of a high priest, it's like a light bulb goes off. What is laid out for us in these verses is a fundamental spiritual truth. And that is this, if we are going to grow as followers of Jesus Christ, it requires us to gain a better understanding of who God is and who we are which will only drive us to the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul said he glorified in the cross. He also saw himself as the chief of sinners who found mercy at the cross. And he also resolved to preach only Christ and Him crucified. Paul was determined that in all of his teaching and all of his preaching and all of his missionary activities, the central point of importance was the cross of Christ. It was on the cross and through the cross and by the cross that our, that our Savior performed his work of redemption and gathered his people for eternity. And so I implore you this morning, don't think of, of this study or going through the book of Hebrews or looking at Jesus as a high priest as, as boring, but instead... Understand that we should seek a clearer understanding of who God is and God's holiness and seek a deeper insight into our own sinfulness apart from Christ, which will only lead you to appreciate all the more the cross of Christ and what was accomplished by our high priest who enters the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but as Hebrews tells us, with his own blood. The more we understand 
about the holiness of God, the more we understand about our own sinfulness and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And it does away with our pride, which is the root cause of every relational sin that you can name. So let's get into this passage of Scripture and see what we can learn from this passage. First, uh, the author starts off in, in chapter 5 by giving us the qualifications for a typical high priest. He gives us qualifications for a typical high priest. What we have laid out for us in verses 1 through 4 are these qualifications of a typical high priest. Verse 1 starts off with a word for, which is a reference back to verse verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4, and it is to show us that our high priest fulfills a requirement of their priesthood. There are three requirements listed. One, solidarity with the people. Two, sympathy for the people. And three, selected by God. The reason the author is giving these qualifications of a typical high priest is so that he can set that up and show how Jesus not only fulfills those qualifications, but that Jesus is not the typical high priest because Jesus fulfills the qualifications, but he exceeds the qualifications of high priest because he is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So let's quickly break these qualifications down. First, solidarity with the people. Solidarity with the people. To be a high priest, the person had to have some sort of oneness with humanity. The verse says, every high priest chosen among men. So then the verse uh, tells us why the high priest is chosen to represent them in matters related to God and offer gifts and sacrifices specifically for sin. If we were not sinners separated from a holy God, then there would be no need for a priest. No one was free to enter the Holy of Holies. No one was free to meet directly with God. And the high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And even then, he had to follow specific instructions, or he would die instantly. Every Jew knew that they desperately needed a mediator between God and man. And the high priest was the God-appointed mediator. The emphasis in the verse is on the fact that the high priest acted on behalf of the people. The, the ideal high priest was not someone who would uh, kind of retire to their inner sanctum and have no community with the people. Instead, the ideal high priest was one who would have related to the people and was a man that was selected from among the men. However, we can't skip that these offerings were made for sins. The entire sacrificial system, and specifically the Day of Atonement, points to the problem of human sinfulness and the presence of a holy God. Without the right sacrifice, sinners could not approach God, and they could not be reconciled to God. This was designed by God to foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So what does this mean? It means that we cannot be reconciled to God 
until we recognize our sinfulness. If we do not recognize that we are sinners, then we have no need of a Savior. It is in the recognition that we are sinners that causes us to cry out, God have mercy on me. And at the heart of the gospel is not that we need to try Jesus out or or add Jesus to what we're already doing or, or see if Jesus can help me in my situation. At the heart of the gospel is that we are alienated from a holy God because of our sin, but God in His grace has made a provision through His Son, Jesus Christ, as the high priest who came and lived among men. And so, solidarity with the people. Secondly, second qualification was sympathy for the people. Sympathy for the people. Verses 2 and 3 make it clear that the high priest must also be able to sympathize with the people and this is because the high priest is also a sinner. If someone is going to be an effective mediator, they must understand the people that they represent. Now, the high priest understood the people because before the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice for the people, the high priest first had to offer sacrifice for their own sin, according to Leviticus 16.6. And so... They were aware of their own sinfulness, but they were also aware of their own weaknesses. Verse 2 says, a high priest was beset with weakness. This is what enabled them to deal gently with, as the scripture says, the ignorant and the wayward. According to Leon Morris in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, those words to deal gently with were used classically to define a course of conduct that was the middle course between anger and apathy, between being incensed and a laissez-faire attitude about sin. The priest is not uh, uh, the priest is not just an act, and the priest is not to act um, indifferently towards sin, but they also weren't to be harsh with repentant sinners and sin uh, since they knew that that they also were sinners they knew from personal experience how prone everyone is to sin when someone is truly aware that they are a sinner and couple that with an awareness of their own weakness then they deal gently with others what i found is the person that is harsh judgmental and unsympathetic is one who is not aware of their own sin and not aware of their own weakness. Sadly, this is where most Christians are at today. They are made aware of their own sinfulness and their own sinful condition and they place their faith in Christ initially and then they go through this process of sanctification and their process of sanctification has somehow made them delusional. Because what happens in Christian circles, now I'm not saying this happens here, but what happens in Christian circles is a group of Christians that have known the Lord and gone through that process of sanctification somehow think that they are better than other people. They somehow are delusional and are thinking like, well, I'm better than that person. Or I'm better than this person over here, which then causes them 
to be judgmental and unsympathetic and harsh and to look at someone else and, well, I can't believe so-and-so and, and this, that, and the other and, and try to hold people to a certain standard, which they shouldn't be trying to hold people to, and it actually disqualifies them from ministry. So we have solidarity with the people. We have sympathy for the people. Let's see, um, finally, selected by God. This position of being a high priest was not done through human elections, but divine selection. All of Israel's high priests were to come only by divine appointment. Any attempt to do otherwise was met with catastrophic judgment. And so even though by this point the high priest was reduced to merely a political appointment, the author is speaking of the original intention of a high priest. The point being driven home is that no genuine high priest ever placed himself in the office. You couldn't, you didn't wake up one day and like, oh, I think I'm going to be the high priest. I'm going to run for the high priest election. That's not how it worked. And so, even though by this point, when the author of Hebrews is writing, the high priest was really reduced to a merely political appointment, the author is speaking of the original intention of the high priest. The point being driven home is that, that he couldn't just say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, do this on my own. Every high priest was sovereignly chosen by God. Furthermore, we have a lesson here about the choosing of the high priest and about how we approach God. And that's this. We don't get to approach God by our own choosing. The only way we approach God is through His choosing. In this case, through His ordained mediator. In the Old Testament, that was the high priest. However, all those priests were sinners, and it points to the need of a perfect high priest, and the perfect high priest is Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the qualifications for the high priest. He laid out, here's the qualifications. Now let's see that Jesus is not the typical high priest because he exceeds all qualifications. Starting in verse 5, the author of Hebrews shifts focus from the human high priest to the God-man high priest. The author will show that Jesus not only fulfills the requirements of the Aaronic priesthood, but in fact, he exceeds them by being a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll, which we'll look at more in depth when we get to chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now, interestingly enough, he, he uh, reverses the order. And uh, he gives, uh, when he gives Jesus his qualification, he reverses the order for the high priest. And uh, he lays that out for us. So now, let's look at that. Let's look at the reversed order for the high priest. First, Jesus was selected by God. In verse 5 and 6, we see Jesus was divinely selected. He didn't exalt himself, but, but instead, uh, uh, he was selected by God. He didn't insert himself into the appointment. The author cites from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, to show that even though the Christ is the Son of God and has a unique relationship with the Father, he didn't appoint himself 
to the office of high priest and said, God appointed him. And this is not a limited appointment like all other high priests who served for a time, but his appointment was an eternal appointment. Jesus is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. In Psalm 110, we see the Son is exalted to a position at the Father's right hand and has sovereign rule. But then in verse 4, we find that in the Messiah, the offices of king and priest are united, and he is designated priest forever. It says that you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The point of these quotations is to show that Jesus Christ is both eternal king and he is eternal priest. He did not presume to take the offices, but they came uh, to him by the ordaining word of God the Father. He didn't seek these offices, but he sought only to please and glorify God the Father. Therefore, Jesus' priesthood is superior to that of Aaron because Aaron's was temporal. Jesus is not. Jesus' priesthood is without end and without beginning. And so he was selected by God. Secondly, or B, Jesus showed sympathy for the people. Verses 7 and 8 elaborate on verse 15 of chapter 4. The author is turning his attention towards the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is evidenced when he ties in the day of his flesh, which is pointing to the ministry of Jesus. The connection back to verse 15 ties in the fact that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest because he has been tempted in all things as yet we are tempted and he was without sin. We Talked about that in depth last week. Like the Levitical priest, Jesus could identify with the weaknesses of the people. He showed sympathy to the people. However, unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus had no sin of his own. Furthermore, Jesus was able to sympathize because he knows what it's like to feel sadness and hurt and pain. That's what verse 7 tells us. It says, with loud cries and tears. It is recalling Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that He wrestled with the prospect of taking our sins on Himself. His struggle was not just a physical struggle of the crucifixion. As horrible as that was. But His struggle was with the, also with the idea that He would be separated from the Father. And we are told that this struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane was so intense that he sweat drops of blood. This shows us that even though Jesus was truly God, and even though the cross was a part of God's predetermined plan, it didn't make it easy. Sometimes people make much to do about Christ's prayers when it says, the one who was able to save him from death, saying that he prayed to him. People will say, well, Jesus' prayer was not answered. Well, to be clear, these were not prayers expressing a desire to escape the cross and the grave. Jesus predicted his own death many times. Throughout the Gospels, he did so. And said that death was the purpose for which he was sent into the world in John 12, 27. It's not like he didn't know that he was going to die. Jesus did not pray in order to be saved from dying. He prayed in order to be saved out of death through the resurrection. 
Jesus' prayer to be saved from death was a prayer to be raised from the grave. The one who was able to save Jesus from death answered his prayer when he delivered him from death in the resurrection. God the Father didn't turn a deaf ear to God the Son. He heard his Son's prayers and he answered them because of his reverence. The best way to think about that when it says that uh, because of his reverence is this idea of reverent submission. And we see it when Jesus prays in the garden. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Total submission to the Father. And finally, when the verses say that Jesus learned obedience, it's not learning in the sense that Jesus was disobedient and then he learned to be obedient. That's kind of how we think of it today. But what it means is that Jesus was untested and he moved from being untested to actually being tested. He was always obedient to the Father, but the proof of obedience was revealed in the situations of his sufferings. As Jesus suffered, he learned to obey his Father. Suffering taught him how to submit to his Father's will. By Jesus faithfully enduring suffering that was ordained by God to redeem sinners by his own blood, Jesus learned obedience. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Let me say, uh, let's just say that you and I were talking, and I say to you, my kids are extremely obedient. And you say to me, prove it. And so I look at my kids and I say, kids, here's 20 bucks. Go buy yourself something. And they go buy themselves something. And I say, see? See how obedient they are? That was not a test of their obedience, right? I mean, what kid is not going to take $20 and go buy something? You'd say, well, that's not truly a test of their obedience. The test will be if I say, kids... Go clean your room. And they do it. That's the test of obedience. That's what we're talking about. Jesus experienced the test of obedience and accomplished it. The whole point is that Jesus is able to show sympathy for people because he experienced obedience through his suffering in a more excellent way than anyone ever before. And therefore, Jesus is able to show sympathy in a greater way. He's able to show sympathy greater than any high priest ever could. So Jesus showed sympathy for the people. Therefore, he is qualified, and he did so in an exceeding greater way. Now let's see that Jesus displayed solidarity with the people. Verse 9 starts out with this, and being made perfect. Again, this does not imply that Jesus was imperfect previously and then became perfect. But just like before, his experience of obedience and suffering unto death was a prerequisite for becoming a qualified and sufficient high priest. And being made perfect through suffering and death just became the source of, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation stands in contrast to the temporary nature of the Old Testament sacrificial system. 
that had to be repeated year after year, and it could never make perfect those who offered the sacrifice. When it says that he is the source of eternal salvation, it is saying that Jesus is the cause of our salvation. The cause of our salvation is not that God looked down through time and he saw that who would believe one day and therefore he said, oh, okay, I I now see who's going to believe. The cause of our salvation is that the triune God of the universe, as Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. That's the cause of your salvation. Jesus became a man displaying solidarity with the people. He became the cause of salvation to all those who obey Him, it says. This is not saying that you're saved by works, but it's saying that saving faith is obedient faith. As Jesus commanded, repent and believe in the gospel. You can't separate saving faith and obedient faith, just like you can't separate unbelief from disobedience. Those who genuinely believe in Jesus as Savior live a life of obedience to Him as Lord of their lives. Those who merely claim to believe but live a life of disobedience to Him are not truly saved. And we've gone over this multiple times in the book of Hebrews already. It it, it just is a proof that they don't know Jesus as their Savior. Now, I know that's not a popular message, and people will say, well, you can't judge people. I'm not judging anybody. I'm just telling you what the Scripture tells us. Then in verse 10, the author comes back to God's design and says that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This puts Jesus in a category all by himself. Because he's not like any other Levitical priests, which we'll look at more again in chapter 7. The point of the author and the point that the author is, is, is showing is that Jesus Christ not only perfectly fulfills the qualifications, but he exceeds them. And to go back to this Old Testament way of doing things is to return to an inferior system and to abandon the true high priest Jesus displayed solidarity with the people to the point that he is their source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him. And that's the point that's being driven home. Now, one might say, well, there's no specific commands in these verses, in this passage of Scripture. How am I supposed to apply all that stuff that you just said To my life today. And I'm glad that you asked that question. I'm glad that you were thinking that question. I know that's what you were thinking. So I want to take a few minutes and apply this passage of Scripture to our lives today. First, salvation is through Christ alone. Salvation is through Christ alone. I want you to stop and think about your sin for a moment. Often we don't realize how hideous our sin is. Our sin is so terrible that the only thing that could possibly pay for it 
was the death of God's perfect and sinless Son. That's how bad it is. He was the only solution. And to somehow think that there must be another way for salvation, that there must be another solution, is foolishness. Salvation, according to the Scripture, is through Christ alone. Any system of salvation that relies on anything other than Christ maligns the death of Christ and makes the death of Christ completely unnecessary. Why would Christ offer up, according to these verses, crying and tears if you are good enough to get yourself into heaven by your own works? If you could somehow be good enough to get there by yourself, why would He do that? Why would He sacrifice, put Himself on the cross, and die for our sins if somehow all you had to do was work harder at being good and that would get you into heaven? He wouldn't. Any system that adds works to Christ's sacrifice, notice what I said. I said adds works to Christ's sacrifice. I didn't say replace. If it replaces, it's definitely terrible. But even if it adds works, to Christ's sacrifice. Anything that does that. Says, well, it's Christ's death plus my works. Christ's death plus anything that does that adds any unnecessary condition to salvation does away with the atoning death of Jesus Christ. It says it wasn't necessary. It says, well, he didn't have to die because it's me. It's, it's part of my works. It's, it is God's grace, but I gotta do something. I gotta, I gotta do something on my, on my, no, you don't! There's nothing that you can do. Salvation is through Christ alone. Secondly, we must seek refuge at the cross. Our sinfulness invokes the wrath of God. And the only shelter that we can possibly find from the wrath of God is at the cross of Christ. And if we've discovered that refuge, we should daily have an attitude of gratitude towards Christ. Every single day, not just on Sunday morning when you come into church and you sing a song or, or this sort of thing. You should every single day have, a, a, have gratitude Towards Christ. I found this quote from A.W. Pink this week that I think fits well. He said this, Into what infinite depths of humiliation did the Son of God descend? How unspeakably dreadful was His anguish. What a hideous thing sin must be if such a sacrifice was required for its atonement. How real and terrible a thing is the wrath of God. What love moved Him to suffer on our behalf? What must be the portion of those who despise and reject such a Savior? Oh church, we have to seek refuge at the cross. 
You seek refuge at the cross of Christ. And if you found that refuge, we must be grateful daily for it. You know, we were in Sunday school studying this morning and we were talking about Paul and Silas in the jail and how is it that they were able to sing? Paul, more than anybody else in the New Testament, understood the grace of God. So I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, for crying out loud, he was killing Christians. Stood there while Stephen was stoned. He said, I'm the, I'm the chief of He understood the grace of God and the refuge that was found at the cross. How is it that he's able to sing while he's in stocks? Because he had an attitude of gratitude daily for the cross of Christ that saved him. Because he was a wretch. We should have that attitude every day. That I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I found refuge at the cross of Christ. Number three, saving faith is obedient faith. Saving faith is obedient faith. I said this earlier in the message, but I want to reiterate it here. It's not a contradiction to the point that salvation is through Christ alone. We are saved by faith alone, entirely apart from works, but saving faith necessarily produces good works in our life. James makes it clear when he says that anyone who says he has faith but has no works is deceiving himself. You don't have saving faith without having some sort of obedient faith. It is not possible. It is impossible for the Holy Spirit to come and take up residence in your life and for you to be completely disobedient to the things of God. It's impossible. We are to be obedient to the Lord and His will, no matter the cost. Saving faith is obedient faith. Number four, an active prayer life fuels obedient faith. If we want to truly be people of obedience, then we have to communicate with God. And that means that we have an active prayer life. And I'm not... I'm not talking about uh, praying only at meals here. You're like, well, I pray. I pray before I eat every day. Well, you, congratulations. That's not really an active prayer life. Okay? I'm not talking about the eyebrow prayer. You know what that is, right? Where, where people are around and you pretend like you're rubbing your head. And you say a prayer real quick. Lord, thank you for this for me. Amen. Right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an active prayer life. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed so that he could be obedient in going to the cross. We need to pray for obedience. Prayer and obedience go hand in hand. We are told to pray without ceasing. We are told to pray so that we will not enter temptation in Luke 22.40. We must have an active prayer life if we want to be obedient in our faith. You pray, God, help me to be obedient. No matter the cost, no matter what it is, help me to be obedient. We pray without ceasing. We pray, God, help me to not enter temptation. And when I am tempted, help me not to fall. Fifth, 
God's love does not keep us from trials. We often think that if we're going through a trial of some sort or some sort of hardship, that means that God doesn't love us. God loved his son, and yet the cross still happened because it was his destiny. God loves us. That doesn't mean you're not going to have suffering. Christ suffered more than we ever will suffer. And God loved him. When we suffer, it's God bringing us to glory. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper says, No one ever said that they learned their deepest lessons of life or had their sweetest encounters with God on the sunny days. People go deep with God when the drought comes. Just because you're going through a trial doesn't mean God doesn't love you. We don't look at our circumstances and use that as a gauge of how much or whether God loves us. Think about Lazarus. He was dead in a tomb. Things weren't looking so good for him. The Lord loved him, right? C.H. McIntosh said, Never interpret God's love by your circumstances, but always interpret your circumstances by His love. You interpret your circumstances by His love. Sixthly, there is nothing wrong with emotions, but they must be submitted to God's will. Sometimes Baptists try to make emotions evil. We act like you're not allowed to experience emotion, you know. And that's why a lot of times people don't clap or we don't hear a lot of amens and that sort of thing. I mean, some people do, but we, we act like <gasps> you can't show your emotions. And we've gone kind of the, the other extreme because we don't want to be considered charismatic, which if you're here when we studied uh, Corinthians, or I can't remember. I think Corinthians, we talked about what that word means. But we don't want to be considered charismatic. And so we've gone to this other extreme, like, oh, you can't do nothing. You sit on your hands and be real rigid and stiff. And emotions aren't wrong. God's given you your emotions. I teach a whole lesson at, at what, what's called Super Summer in the summer, where I teach a, a teens, teach a whole lesson on emotions. We shouldn't deny our emotions. The problem comes when we allow our emotions to guide us into certain actions. Being bitter towards God or railing at God is not acceptable. When we get angry at something and then we act on that anger is not acceptable. We need to allow our emotions to tell us how we feel, but not dictate what we do. And so we say, well, this is telling me how I'm sad, I'm upset or whatever it might be but that should not dictate my actions remember job when he lost everything he lost everything i mean he had to be sad he had to be hurting he had to be upset you remember what job said the lord gives and takes away blessed be the name of the lord may we do the same that we would submit our emotions to the will of God and say, God, I'm angry or I'm upset 
or I'm sad or I'm hurting or whatever it might be and submit that emotion to God and allow him to define our actions. There's nothing wrong with emotions, but they must be submitted to God's will. Lastly, sometimes God answers prayers in ways that seem to contradict our request. You've probably heard someone say something really dumb like, uh, the reason your prayer is not being answered is because you lack faith. That's just not biblical. I mean, yeah, we are to have faith, but trust me, God doesn't need your faith to do what he's going to do. Some will say that if we pray for the Lord's will to be done, then that lacks faith. And they think, well, we've we got to name it and claim it by faith. That's how Jesus prayed, right? When he prayed, Lord, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. That was name it and claim it, right? Now that was him submitting his will to the Lord's will. I guess Jesus didn't understand the name it and claim it prayer. God answered Jesus. He answered him by sustaining him in his greatest hour of need. He sustained him while he was on the cross and through his resurrection and ultimately in his ascension into heaven. And you know, there's going to be times in our lives where God does not answer how we pray. And sometimes He may answer in ways that seem to contradict what we wanted in the first place. You know what? God knows what He's doing. And He's always doing it for our good. He knows what He's doing. It's always for our good. And even when you can't see it or understand it, and even when you can't fathom or comprehend it, God knows exactly what He's doing. And even when it's contradictory to what we ask for in the first place, even when it's something that just totally blows our mind perhaps, and we think, can this possibly be from God? God knows exactly what He's doing. I close with this. If you're not walking in obedience to Jesus, then I call on you to repent this morning. Stop putting all of your hope in the empty promises of sin and put your hope in the true promises of God. God is infinitely holy and you are a sinner in need of a high priest. Jesus Christ is that high priest. And so I call on you this morning, run to Him for salvation. It occurs through Christ alone. Jesus is the Savior we need because He is the only Savior. And so I say to you this morning that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would plead with you this morning. He is the Savior you need. Secondly, 
if you are here this morning as a believer. Let me just say this. Your faith does not stop when you trust in Christ as your Savior. Scripture is clear that we're called to walk by faith. When you trust Christ, your journey is just beginning. You've come by faith, and you live by faith, and when you go to glory, it will be by faith. And so if you're here struggling today with things that you're having to submit to, and you're you're thinking, I don't want to submit to that, and if you're here struggling this morning with a sin that's maybe in your life, and it's hindering you, and, and you're having difficulty fighting that sin, and if you're struggling today with some sort of suffering that you're going through, or that you're having to endure, that God has allowed to come into your life, if you're struggling today, believe that Jesus is still the Savior you need. Walk by faith in obedience to Him. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song, and like we do every week, I'm going to give you a chance to respond, and maybe this morning you've felt the Lord speak to your conscience in some way, shape, or form. Maybe this morning you For the first time, you've heard the gospel explained in a way that you want to respond to. And I'd I'd be glad to meet you down front and talk with you briefly about that and have a conversation with you later. Maybe you just want to come and pray this morning. Maybe this morning you'd say, I got some struggles. I I need to be obedient in my faith walk. Maybe you want me to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. We just give you an opportunity to respond. You don't have to. You can do it in your pew or or whatever, but I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond in any way that, that God's spoken to you this morning. So when we sing here in just a minute, I would ask you to do that. Let's close with prayer.